All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, and with me today is my man's Marty Frederick. Marty, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Josh. How are you? I'm good. Just, uh, you know, hanging out. Just had a really cool call. I've been uh, hanging out with this uh, group organization thing called Jesus Collective recently. Um, And so I was talking with one of the people in leadership in that group. So that was a lot of fun. Um, But also, Marty, I'm a little bit nervous, if I can be honest with you. Uh, Because today we're having a conversation that I think is super important and necessary. Um, And it's taken a long time to kind of get to a place uh, where we could have this conversation, but I'm still nervous about it. Okay. I mean, what do you, so what do you think? Because, so basically today we're going to be talking about narcissism in the church. And you and I have very much, I mean, we had an experience together at a church where we worked together, uh, where this was, I mean, this book that we read, if it wasn't a case study for the church we worked at, then I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel, I feel your nervousness. I've, I've kind of been nervous about it. I actually, um, last week I had a dream and I don't know if this is just, you know, separate from reading the book or, or not, but I'm not, I'm not an expert on, uh, on psychology of the mind, but, um, a dream where I had to go to this church and I had to, uh, I was leading worship for that church again, but it was just a one-time deal. Um, and we had to set up and tear down uh, like we normally used to have to do, um, even though they don't do that anymore. And um, and I we did all the work to set up and tear down, and then I realized, oh, I don't have my guitar. <laughs> so I couldn't get up on stage and actually lead worship at all. And so then I just didn't go up there, and they just did the service without me. And then uh, the pastor said, hey, that's okay. You know, it was a good service besides that one thing. We'll just debrief on that tomorrow. And uh, that was that I woke up with a lot of anxiety. Uh, but then it, it on the surface level went away pretty quickly because I was like, oh, well, I'm not there anymore. So I don't have to debrief tomorrow about that at all. <laughs> and my guitar is right there. So I know exactly where it is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely understand the nervousness. I think it kind of fills in um, in many different ways. So yeah, and it's weird, dude, too, because like, I didn't think I was going to be nervous at all. But like the closer, you know, now that we're recording, it's uh, 
vamping itself up, but I think real quick, just before we jump in, I wanted to share with you or like something that we had talked about before we did this, just a, a few commitments that we wanted to make from the outset before we do this. Cause yeah. we, we could do this in a way that would not be helpful, right? We could, uh, yeah. like name drop and put people on blast and all this kind of stuff. And that might feel good for a little bit, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, that, that wouldn't be helpful. Um, so we're going to commit not to do that. <laughs> yeah, in some ways, that might be narcissistic to assume that people would be listening to what we're going to say anyhow. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board with that. I'm on board with number one. Yeah, and kind of just uh, come at this from an approach where we can still be brutally honest and share our experience uh, because it's real and that's helpful to people, uh, but do it in a way that's hopefully uh, for transformation um, yeah. and uh, healing rather than just you know, pe putting people on blast. So what do you think? Yeah. I agree. And if I could just add to that, I think, you know, one thing that we have, like we've talked about, we always try to do in this podcast is help people is point people to Jesus um, and help people remember that Jesus is King of them and uh, no human being on earth can ever be King of over them or over anything else. Um, and so Jesus uh, is, is obviously our King and he's mine. And I know he's yours. And so um, that's the most important fact. So that's what we're trying to do here is point people back to Jesus. Yeah, most definitely. Sounds like a plan, man. Um, cool. Well, how about this? We'll uh, go ahead and bring our guest on because they have a lot of really helpful things to say. So we're excited to bring mm -hmm. him in. And so with us today is, uh, hopefully I don't get your last name wrong. Please correct me. Chuck DeGroat. You got it. Nice. Awesome. Well, Chuck, how are you? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for taking some time to hang out with us today. We appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Chuck, we have a question that we ask every guest that comes on the podcast before we get started. Uh, it's a really important question. Um, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh, gosh. My favorite <laughs> ice hockey team. Um, it's got to be it's got to be the the New York Islanders. Okay. okay. Right on. I think is that the first Islanders answer we've gotten, Marty? I think so. Yeah, I, I think so. I grew up on Long Island and um but man, I haven't followed the Islanders for years. So, but that's that would be it, guys. Man, it's where does nice. that come from? Are we do we have some ice hockey fans here? Yeah. yeah. Marty and yeah. I both are huge ice hockey fans. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, Quarantine's been tough. We haven't been. There's no sports to watch, let alone hockey to watch. So right, the Stanley Cup playoffs should be happening right now, and they're not. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, guys. That's therapy. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it is. And I, Chuck, I play ice hockey, and I've, I've, you know, obviously I can't do that right now. And playing ice hockey is also very therapeutic, um, yeah. because you can be aggressive, and it's just a part of the game, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got to get it out of our system somehow, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, so Chuck, um, Chuck. So I, I guess the next next couple of questions, we just want to hear from you. Who are you? Uh, what do you do? What what kind of led to uh, what you're doing now in life? Yeah, yeah. So I've been in ministry since the mid '90s. I pastored in Orlando and in San Francisco, and uh, I, in that, I was never a lead pastor, uh, but I did start a couple of church based counseling centers, run spiritual formation, and. And, and through that work and in, in the midst of that work, uh, I, I was a therapist, too. And in my therapeutic practice, I've been doing over the years lots of assessments, psychological assessments. And so uh, in church plants, uh, for church plants, church planning organizations, uh, denominations, et cetera. And so a, a lot of the a lot of what 
you know, this conversation is about comes from my experience as a pastor, as a therapist, as a counselor, as a church consultant, like wearing these different hats, right? That uh, yeah. now, now I'm a seminary professor pretending that I know a little something about life and ministry. Uh, <laughs> and when I think at this stage of life, I probably know less and have far more questions than I used to. But um, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for having the opportunity now to actually kind of pour into the future pastors. Great. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And so... Um, recently, like some of one thing, uh, that your, your work has led to, uh, is the book that you, you put out not too long ago from IV, uh, IVP called when narcissism comes to church. Yes. And so this, uh, was a, like an insanely helpful book. Uh, I'm so thankful that you took the time to write it and put in all the time and mm-hmm. energy and effort. Um, it's such an important topic, uh, that I feel like is not for whatever reason, um, always addressed which you you allude to in the book yeah it's not and in fact you know it's crazy to me because i thought when i first started doing this kind of work over 20 years ago i saw narcissism in all sorts of different places and i you know i i had gotten the uh, mental health counseling degree so i had kind of like the clinical categories for it but but if you had asked me like 20 years from now is the church going to going to deal with this well, I, I would have said, yeah, like we're waking up to some of these dynamics, but it just seems that particularly as I've, I've looked at what's happened over the last three to five years or so, some really big names, and we're not going to talk specifically about people, but, but people can sort of infer who I'm talking about, but some really big names, um, and to see the, like the debris field of destruction and uh, as one guy told me at one point, the trail of dead bodies coming from particular churches, staff members mm-hmm. after another, leaving um, some out of ministry now. It's it's really, for me, it's heartbreaking. It's really tragic, actually, to, to think about how we, you know, how the Church of Jesus, the humble, suffering servant Jesus, you know, has become a church of power, of empire, of expertise. Um, it's It's pretty sad. Yeah, most definitely. And I mean, like you heard us talking about earlier, that definitely was an experience Marty and I had. I mean, the trail of dead bodies, so to speak, the turnover rate where we were was ridiculous. And um, it's really sad because it was my first experience in ministry. And so um, Mm -hmm. for me, I thought it was normative. I was like, oh, this is what working in a church is. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. And that's the case for for so many, you know, I mean, you get you get sort of uh, drawn into a system and uh, you're told, this is what we do. This is your role. Uh, this is who I am. I'm the expert. I have power. I tell you what to do. You buy into my leader leadership program, my vision. Um, and, and, you know, then it just becomes a matter of survival. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sad that you've experienced something of that. I've experienced something of that, but so many people I talk to have experienced some shape, or form of narcissism in the church. And, and that's really a painful thing. Yeah. So Chuck, as you, as you, as we look at the, as we look through the book, one obviously one of the big things we're talking about today is the term narcissism, but can you give us a definition of what narcissism is? Uh, you know, what, what is narcissism? You know, what does it look like? Are there many faces The three different types? Can yeah. you talk about, about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, so what I try to do is I, I try to acknowledge like the, the primary definition of narcissism that psychologists give us, uh, that kind of deals with categories like grandiosity, 
um, a need for attention, a lack of empathy, uh, uh, impaired relationships, work relationships and intimate relationships, things like that. But what I try to do in the book is I try to say um, we have this kind of caricature of narcissism of the of the kind of grandiose upfront leader. And that that's one face of narcissism. But there are a number of different ways that narcissism can present itself. Um, and so it may not actually be the grandiose leader on stage and up front. It might be someone who uh, doesn't have quite as much influence or isn't quite as inspiring, but is equally as manipulative, cunning, strategic, hurtful. And so uh, oftentimes, you know narcissism less by like the the personality of the leader and more by the ex, uh, the abuse you experience from, from that person. Mm. Uh, but yeah, there. I, I mean, th- that classic definition of grandiosity and attention-seeking, lack of empathy. I mean, I'm sure you guys. I know I've experienced that from narcissistic leadership. Yeah, most definitely, and it's it's actually interesting that uh, you kind of. I mean, we're not going to go into detail about these here um, because we want to talk about some other things. But the the you laid out like nine different faces of narcissism, and that was so helpful for me because. Uh, after I left the first church that I was at, I went to uh, a second church and had an equally crappy experience. Um, but I didn't realize that again, I was dealing with a narcissist, um, or somebody with narcissistic personality disorder. I want to be, you were very careful in your book to point out that we shouldn't just label somebody a narcissist and shrink them down to that, that they're still an image bearer. They're still a child of God. Um, So I'm going to try to be fair to that as well. (laughs) But it was a very different kind of narcissism that this person uh, was putting forth. And just um, it made me sad to realize that that's what I was dealing with again. But also it was very helpful to kind of put some words uh, and stories to my experience that helped me feel less crazy. Another thing (laughs) you talked about in your book. Yeah, and it really raises the question, like, why why, why are there so, so many leaders in the church of all places, um, okay. people of God who are trying to follow Jesus along the humble way, right? Why are there so many leaders on the narcissistic spectrum? And I, I appreciate you, you, you bringing up that distinction. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're all narcissistic personality disorder, but what is it about pastoral ministry that attracts people with grandiose tendencies or tension-seeking tendencies, you know? Um, and, and those are some of the big uh, things that we have to grapple with because it's it's real and it's pervasive, particularly in the American church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, too, I guess, like, some things that come to mind is, like, anytime uh, you say or you're under the impression that you are speaking for God <laughs> and there is a group of people that are hanging on every word that you're saying and you are this spiritual authority, that just seems to breed narcissism almost, like encouraged as uh, like some – like you talk about in the book, like these things that we characterize in the church's positive leadership attributes are actually yeah. very dangerous narcissistic tendencies. Yeah, back in the day when I first got into doing church planning assessments, I remember I'd, I'd be with like, I'd always be the odd man out because like the counselor or psychologist is always the one where they're like, oh God, we got to put up with him. Um, <laughs> you know, because they, they want the they want the guy to go through, you know, and so they'd, they'd see a, a whole set of attributes and they'd actually use testing where there'd be this whole set of attributes where I'd look at the attributes and I'd say, well, th- those could like, 
one by one actually be the descriptions of narcissistic personality disorder. And that was what was so discouraging to me is we, we practically invited people on the narcissistic spectrum to, to lead churches, right? Um, and, and we set them up, you know, we put them on stage, we, uh, uh, you know, we, they, they have the authority to, to declare this is the word of the Lord, you know, to, to others. Um, I always joke with my students now that I teach at a seminary that uh, they get a Master of Divinity degree, and it's so ludicrous that we could, like, master divinity. Right. Uh, <laughs> right, right? So there's something about this that's really twisted and unfortunate, and uh, sadly we've sort of gotten away from the way of Jesus, and we've propped people up to be icons and idols uh, rather than humble followers. Yeah. I, I could think of, you know, as you were talking about earlier, just the, the names, the big, huge mega churches and those types of things. And, um, you know, I, I live uh, in an area where a few of those are the case. And these leaders become so important to the people of the church. Um, it's 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 almost as if, like, these leaders become more important than the message that they're trying to share. Um, and, you know, like, the, the church becomes so-and-so's church. You know, it becomes, you know, this church belongs to this person. This church belongs to this person. And I think after a while, not only does that person start to believe that, but their congregation and the staff around them begin to put them on a pedestal. And so when things come out and you hear a story about so the, this pastor or that pastor, not only is the congregation willing to push it aside and say, no way could it ever be that this yeah. person, but the staff does that as well. The staff says, no, 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 no. There's no way so-and-so would ever do that kind of thing. And I think it becomes, we perpetuate this. We we create this Messiah complex out of our pastors yeah. when the pastors are supposed to be teaching us about the Messiah, but in a way that's like, you know, this is not me. I'm not this person. <laughs> There's someone better and greater, you know? And, and so I think as the, it's something that, you know, I've always heard people say megachurches are bad, megachurches are bad. And I don't agree with that necessarily, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and that kind of setting. But I do think this becomes a, something that can happen not only in a megachurch, but in a church of 50 or a church of 20, this charismatic personality can completely take over. Yeah. Yeah. There, I, I don't get into this in great depth. I think that this is like a whole other book, but I think this sort of conflation um, of the gospel with like American capitalism, you know, mm -hmm. produced this to some extent. Yeah. And um, it's survival of the, the fittest. It's about competition. It's about power. It's about, um, it, it's really about propping up our brand, you know, and so we are the, the biggest and best church. I'm the best and brightest pastor. Uh, we have the best programs. We have the best worship. We have the best vision. And that's that's really exhausting. You know, it's it's fascinating to me. I, I love to teach my students about Matthew 4 and Matthew 5. Jesus, Jesus uh, teaching on the Beatitudes, but he actually has to leave in Matthew 4 a huge public ministry event uh, to go up the mountain and begin teaching about the humble way of, of the kingdom, right? And, and it's interesting that... Uh, like, like we, what pastor do you know today who would leave a large public ministry event, you know, to talk yeah. about the way of mourning, the way of brokenness, the way of meekness, the way, <laughs> well, I do think, I do think that uh, there, there's something about a return to the gospel, and in that, um, a movement toward humility, uh, of surrendering power, which we're maybe just not ready to do, uh, because if we do that, we lose, we lose our influence, we lose our 
our our um our platform right yeah yeah most definitely and i think too like if i i want to push what you're saying a little bit further instead of just saying a return to the gospel i want to say a return to jesus like yeah, the good. person of jesus not the theological yeah. idea or construct of the christ although that is important i don't want to get rid of that but jesus the person <laughs> is so important because well, the, he's been yeah. sidelined he's a mascot right jesus is the mascot yeah. of the christian church now that's to yeah. a large extent true <laughs> uh, and even even as you say it's so good uh even even the way we talk about the gospel that's been fit into some sort of power structure or construct right this is if you believe these five things then you're in um, you're chosen, in fact, right? Yeah. Um, and the rest are not chosen, and they're out. And and there, I noticed that when that language is used, only a very few are chosen. And so, I mean, there's a problem with that, you know. Where whereas Jesus, I think Jesus moves toward us in our pain, in our confusion. Um, Jesus always pushes power out to others and empowers, right? Yeah. Well, and. I want to um, I want to ask a question about one of the characteristics that you talk about, um, which will kind of lead to um, asking about what are some common characteristics. Um, oh, specifically within the church, um, one of the ones I experienced often was praising with and withdrawing um, that you kind of talk about in your book. And this was actually in a church before the one I worked at with Josh, uh, where uh, you would almost like if you did a great job, you you would be you would kind of be told, hey, that was a great job. But if you made a mistake or you did something wrong, you get the the feeling of you know being in the proverbial doghouse for a period of time, you know, not knowing when you are going to be um, spoken to next, you know, not knowing when you were going to be given that next chance to preach. Uh, I actually, the, the, uh, um, example you use in that chapter of, um, a youth pastor preaching a sermon that everyone loved and then never being asked to preach again. That was literally me. Uh, it was my third <laughs> sermon, not my first sermon. Um, but in my third sermon, I preached, uh, some of the pastors, you know, friends that in the church that had really, that were really good at kind of helping him craft, you know, how to say certain things that were very theologically minded. They said it was one of the best sermons I'd heard in years yeah. to which he just passively didn't ask me to preach again. Um, which, and I, and I recognized it right away and I, and I could recognize right away that this was an inferiority, yeah. you know, feeling for him. Um, and so as we kind of just think about that, you know, and also, by the way, many times I would, you know, hear the, you know, well, you know, our art is where you guys were mentioning this earlier, you know, our church has some of the best worship around, you know, I would, I would put our worship service up against any of these churches <laughs> in the area. We heard that uh, every and, Sunday, bro. <laughs> and, and I just don't get why people aren't coming. You know, it was kind of always the, the follow-up to that. I don't get why I wish more people would come and see it. You know, we only had, we only had 123 people here. No, of course, of course there were also kids, but, you know, it's like there was always the exact number, you know, um, so, but what, what are some common characteristics of somebody with NPD? Um, and I guess my follow-up question to that is, are, are those different in ministry than outside, like in the secular world? Yeah. What, what's really interesting is, um, they're, they're pretty close. They're pretty similar. And, um, this is where we're, we're dealing with the phenomenon where the, the kinds of leaders that we're producing to use a word that's loaded in the yeah. church very similar to leaders that are, are leading, um, you know, when I was in the Bay Area, uh, startups and um, software companies and apps and, you know, app developers, like the, the same kinds of narcissistic characteristics, you know, um, and I list, I list 10 in there. Um, 
But I mean, you you uh, you guys you guys you, you want to highlight a few of them? Want to name a couple, and we could just walk through you you sure you put out a couple, and we'll just talk about them. Yeah. Sure. So in in I have the it's page seventy, Marty. If if um yep, where they're they're laid out in a nice list. But uh, also, um, this in in relation to like our experience of the church we worked at together. Reading this list, I was laughing, um, yeah. <laughs> because it's actually insane. Uh, yeah. but one of them, so Marty already talked about praise and withdrawal. This would happen a lot. Like, you know, oh, you did really good there. Um, but instead yeah. of withdrawal, like whenever I screwed up, I would be berated. Like there were multiple yeah. times when they would come into my office, shut the door and scream at me on the top of their lungs, f- literally finger in the face kind of stuff. And like Marty's office was next door to mine, so it's not like it was a secret. <laughs> like, well, and Josh's office had a window, by the way. Josh's office had a big window in it, so it wasn't private. Everyone knew that what was happening in there. And uh, in some ways, you, there's almost the trauma, I, I would say, on my side of kind of knowing and seeing and not doing anything about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, which I know Josh doesn't hold that against me, but at the same time, there's that's a part of it. You know, that that's a part of that power trip you know, I'm on the outside, I see this happening. And so my first thought process is, well, I don't ever want to be there. So I'm going to make sure that yeah. I don't screw up too, you know. And we become very hyper, hyper vigilant then about what we're doing, right? If we experience that dynamic, it's sort of like, uh, what, what am I doing wrong? I better watch out next time. I better do it differently so I can keep my job, so I can keep going, so I can be in his favor. You know, the praise piece of it is really important because when, when they get you into their fold and they, they, they reward you and they honor you and they bless you and they, they say nice things about you, I've never, wow, I've rarely seen anyone of your talent or your, your mind or yeah. your, or, people get these kinds of compliments, right? And it's like, wow, I can't believe he noticed me. He sees me. Um, she wants me on her team, whatever it might be, right? And so then when you lose it, it's, it's so excruciating and so disorienting. And the, what ends up happening is you ask yourself the question, well, what, what's wrong with me? Right. Because yeah. obviously, you know, he's, he's the man. He's got the big church. He's got the platform. He's got the people following him. So it must be me. And that's where trauma really begins to set in. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's, that was, I mean, verbatim my, my experience. Like, um, I would ask for help because I felt so overwhelmed. I mean, we, so first off, we worked at a place where the work schedule, they prided themselves on having an, a heavy office culture to use their language. And we would do, what was it? 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. Monday through Friday behind a desk because like, that's the only place you're effective. Like that's where the kingdom of God is, is built is behind your desk. Like visiting people in hospitals and, and seeing your, you know, team members for coffee, other people can do that. Like you're the pastor, you have to do this stuff. So stay here. And then Sunday, 6 a.m. until 5 p.m. again. And then Saturday was normally our off day if there wasn't an event, which typically when there was an event, um, the two people you're talking to are the two guys that put those events on. <laughs> and then yeah. the pastor would come through and like help set it up or whatever, um, but then maybe disappear early or something like that. Um, so, and then, but whenever I would ask for help, it was always, or like get in trouble or show like, this is all the stuff that you have me doing. It was always, you're bad at time management. Like you are just, you're so young. You just don't know. Like you have to learn and grow. Um, I mean, I micromanaged to the point where at one point they had me 
keeping track in an Excel file every 15 minutes. I had to write down exactly what I was doing. If I answered my phone, if I answered a text, if I had to go take a piss, whatever, like it was all in that. So this, which I guess is kind of like the gaslighting thing, like trying to warp reality, but that was constant for me. And I believed it. I genuinely believed I was the problem. Yeah. (laughs) That takes a toll on your soul. I mean, that, um, that's why uh, we end up in therapy for years after this kind of stuff. Because the flip side of those attributes, those 10 characteristics, is um, not just emotional abuse, which is like the invisible wounds, the invisible bruises of, of being berated, of, of being checked on, of command and control, of praise and withdrawal, of impulsivity, all those kinds of characteristics. But it's the spiritual abuse component, too, because when we invest a kind of spiritual authority and, and the person doing the leading, the teaching, it, it's worse um, because now we feel like we're failing God. And and for a lot of us who came out of these kinds of systems, there was significant disorientation, deconstruction. That like, I don't, I'm not sure I could trust you, God. Like I, I'm not. Mm-hmm. You know, my images of God, my images of, of of goodness, of the church, of the people. Like a lot of those are now shattered in, in particular kinds of ways. I remember when I. When I went through my situation, people who I needed to come through for me didn't come through for me um, because they were afraid. And um, I was in like a denominational context, and so there was there was plenty of like there was plenty of like authority structures, but but they broke down. And there's such disillusionment. I know you guys know that deep down in your bones, you probably talk for the next three hours about deep despair and disillusionment, and that's. Mm-hmm. That's where we, we end up in therapy for like three, five, seven years doing the work, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, and one other attribute, because like as I was reading through these, like Josh said, each one of these, I could think of specific personal situations that I experienced. Um, but one of the biggest ones uh, was number six, needing to be the best and brightest in the room. Um and that was one uh, every once in a while we would have these staff lunches and it was always great because they get us whatever we whatever we wanted for lunch. <laughs> so, it was, you know, you you would know well in advance, you know, a couple days, a week or so in advance. Hey, so and so is going to be coming by today. They're not normally here, but they're going to be coming and we're going to have a staff lunch. And uh, it usually would be like a discussion about the Reformation or about, you know, if, if Reformate, you know, the, the 500 years of the Reformation was coming up at this point. Um, however, it wasn't ever a discussion. It was really just a it was an historical lecture um, that this guy had the opportunity to tell us how much he knew about the Reformation. Um, and I don't know if he forgot this about me, didn't know this about me, but I also have a history degree. I, I spent in my seminary, I took a lot of church history classes. So I would often try to you know, add to the conversation, add this or add that. And it would almost feel like it was being pushed aside. Like, you know, like, no, okay, yeah, great. And, and it was like, I, I have more to say. Um, and uh, not that I wanted to be the best and brightest in the room, but I was going into this assuming it was a conversation, <laughs> not <laughs> a lecture. Um, and that, that one was always kind of, I always felt almost like a power move as well to kind of say, like, I'm going to come in here. And whenever I come, you have to drop everything uh, and kind of listen to this, you know. There's so much insecurity in the under in the underbelly of, of a narcissistic leader, right? And so I, yeah. I, mean, I know back in the mid '90s when I was coming through seminary, um, I was this arrogant, uh, certain um, sort of hyper reformed young seminarian who thought he knew it all. 
I, thankfully, at 27, I got confronted by, by someone who had some influence in my life, and it began a new journey. But I know that for me, um, if I would have continued on like that, I could have been that kind of dangerous leader. And part of it was a, a lot of my confidence and certainty was just an illusion. Underneath was such shame, such insecurity, uh, anxiety. And so it was, it was this, I, I'd have propped myself up um, so that you'd respect me. It was a, I, I talk about it as like a large self-protective wall uh, or shield that we hide behind, you know, and the, and the narcissistic false self becomes your sort of outward facing um, armor against the world. And it, it protects the little boy. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my work with these guys, sometimes, occasionally we get to a place where they reveal that part of them, maybe just for a few minutes, maybe for an hour or whatever it is. And I get to see what's like behind the curtain. And inevitably, it's like a seven-year-old boy in profound pain. Um, and and that's that's where I have empathy, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. of empathy where it's like, oh, man, you are just, you're not altogether different than I am. You're hungry for love. You want to mm. be known. You long for, but you're, you're going about getting it in ways that are so profoundly harmful um, to others, to the witness of Jesus, etc., yeah, most definitely. And like, I want to tag on to the example that Marty gave real quick and then share one other thing. And then perhaps we could jump to this idea of uh, systematic narcissism in a church, because I think that's another thing that's important to point out as well. Um, but so the with the being the smartest in the room thing, I remember there was a time when uh, we were going to be preaching this sermon and they were doing these things called the theological moment. And um, they were going to share a story about uh, it was either homoousius or homostasius, which are two very similar Greek words. Uh, but when I was reading over the sermon, I caught that we were using the wrong word, that like the word we were using and attributing to this specific council. Um, I think I, f I forget the councils, so I'm not going to try to say which one's right. But they had them. <laughs> they had them flipped. And so yeah. I, I emailed not my head pastor, but the founding pastor and was like, Hey, I noticed that this, this is not right. Can we talk about it? Within five minutes of me sending that email, the head pastor was in my office screaming at me. Like, who do you think you are that you can first off that you can go to this guy? And second, who are you to uh, like undercut my authority? Why didn't you come to me? And so like I kept, my problem was if Marty can, you know, uh, attest to this I'm kind of stubborn and so I kept pushing the issue and like I was so mad like telling Marty they were wrong and uh, eventually it got to the point where I kept pushing it kept pushing it and the head pastor literally said don't you see I'm trying to protect you from this other person so like the the narcissism went both ways wow. and so yeah. there was even to the point where what we ended up doing was the head pat the the dude finally admitted that it was wrong, but said our congregation's not smart enough to know otherwise. This story fits our sermon better, so we're going to go with this one. That was the solution. Eesh. Wow. So like that's yeah. insane. But um one one other thing. <laughs> sorry, one other thing I want to. It's wanted, true. It's actually true. It sounds fake, yeah. right? Like an office yeah. of. You know, like an episode of The Office as a joke or something. Um, but but one other thing that I thought was, was deeply problematic um, mm. is that a narcissist seems like they 
are are pretty good at picking up on people emotionally. Like they have a good grip yes. of and Marty and I are both extremely relational people. Um, and we're both very sensitive people. I, Marty, you're fine with me saying that, right? <laughs> yeah. I yeah. don't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm good. I, yes. And so, and so uh, <laughs> they could pick up on that and they knew how to manipulate your emotions or like find yeah. wounds and mess with them. And so yeah. they, this, our head pastor knew that Marty and I were friends. And one way that they would press into those wounds or, or manipulate those things is whenever I did something wrong, because I'm not perfect, so I like made a little mistake, they would call Marty into their office and tell Marty, hey Marty, here's like all the things that Josh is doing wrong. We need to uh, confront him about this. What do you think? And then Marty would have to say, yeah, okay, great. And then I would be called in and then be told everything that's wrong with me. And then he'd be like, hey Marty, what do you think? So like this literal triangle thing was created and then, like, that's crazy. But narcissism seems to have that uncanny ability to know your emotions, connect with you emotionally sometimes, but then yeah. use those things against you. Yeah. One of the categories I offer in there is not vulnerability, but vulnerability, F-A-U-X, yeah. like a faux vulnerability, because they, a narcissist is incapable of, of real empathy, but they are tuned in enough to emotions because they're so sensitive themselves, right? I mean, they live in a world, a self-protected world behind their armor. Uh, they're chameleons who are constantly assessing the, the, the weather of the day, right? Licking their finger and sticking it up to the wind and saying, how's it blowing today? So they're, they're, they're very sensitive. They hate the word sensitive, by the way, <laughs> right? Yeah. But they're extraordinarily sensitive um, because they have a lot to protect. I actually think sensitive is a compliment. Let's lean into that and yeah. be transparent about it. But, and so they will do everything they can to protect themselves, and they'll bring others in. We know from family systems theory, triangulation is a very real thing. You know, we'll bring someone else in to both a kind of appease our own anxiety and to kind of one-up or, or, um, or to judge or to scapegoat that other person um, who we're talking about. And that's what happened with you guys, right? I mean, it was sort of a classic strategy, a classic technique um, that people in power, narcissistic leaders in power, used to demoralize, to put in place. Um, and I, what's so sad about that is, is I, obviously, you guys are connected now, so maybe you've rebuilt trust over time, but it can erode trust in relationships. I've seen it yeah. destroy yeah. relationships between people as, as leaders have come in and placed a wedge between two friends yeah, well, and the difference between those types of people and josh and i is uh josh and i spent lots of time together and we spent many of our lunches together um and we are our our as husband and wife my, my wife and i hung out with josh and his wife often um and so these things were not like Josh knew what was happening when he was called in and he saw me there, he yeah. knew, you know, Oh, this is another one of those moments because we had already talked about it beforehand. Um, you know, there was, it was sort of like, you know, for me, it was many oftentimes like, I don't really like, I know that whatever is happening between this relationship between this pastor and I and Josh, I know that this is manipulation and it's not true friendship between this pastor and I, but I know that Josh and I have this true friendship. Um, and so like, I can't betray that because the trust that I need for that 
relationship I know on a deep level because there's a relational connection there and we're very similar individuals. But I also knew that like the trust with this guy is fleeting. This other guy is fleeting anyway. You know, it's going to come and go. It's not always going to be there. Uh, it's it's it essentially having that knowledge of saying, you know, who do I know that is going to need to know they can trust me no matter what? Yeah. And who do I know that is never going to give me that benefit even if I gave it to them. And and so like there was a little bit of wisdom and I think it was from working in the previous place I was at, you know, from like kind of experiencing a narcissistic leader at, at anyway. And so I felt like my eyes had been opened a little bit to it. Uh, but there were things that I experienced, like Josh is talking about with triangulation that I had not experienced before, or I hadn't been able to notice and kind of name and claim uh, as what they were. Um, before we go to the systemic narcissism, just to kind of close up these characteristics idea, I want to ask a question, Chuck, and um, it may sound silly, but you kind of talked about it a little bit when you kind of talked about the scale of, an, of narcissism. But then you also kind of talk about how there's different there's different looks of what narcissism can be. Um, like you can have a different disorder that has narcissistic tendencies. But I guess what my question really is, um, is it is it possible that every human being is indeed somewhere on that scale of narcissism? And some of them may be full blown all the way to the right of just being all in and all out there. And some of us may just have that child in us that you know every once in a while we kind of just have to have it our way and our, our way or the highway kind of thing like what does that look like you yeah. know is, is everyone a narcissist i guess is the question well in, in a strange way and this is going to sound strange um you know psychologists talk about a healthy narcissism particularly as as you're raised in your children like you you want we, we now know and through the last like 40 years of psychology that it's really important that your kids are loved well and <laughs> they're seen they're noticed and they're secure um, and so, you know, when my daughter at like five years old does a cartwheel and says, daddy, daddy, look at me, that's like really significant. And I want to say, Maggie, that's beautiful. I love it. You know, um, now, now if you're like 45 years old and saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, like some of these narcissistic pastors are doing, that's a problem, right? Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. I, I think if you're not loved well, and if there's not a healthy narcissism in childhood, like a healthy sense of self. A healthy ego um, and if you're not loved well to the point where you're able to sort of um, recognize that the story is not all about you as you get into your middle school and teen years you know um, so in other words if you're if you're not loved well if you're bullied if you're hurt you're abandoned you're you know abused and and you demand that the story is about you yeah chances are at 30 35 40 you might become a narcissistic leader who's demanding the attention that you the needed as a child and maybe that's maybe that's a little too psychological for your audience i don't know but i i think it just sort of it makes sense of in my work it makes sense of so many of the middle-aged men that i've seen who you know who have experienced a fall and now they're despairing and it's like i was on top of the world and when i see them they're like a, a wounded little boy he's like does anyone love me I'm like wow I mean, there's so much work to do, and the work that they have to do is actually work that goes way back to childhood. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so real quick, um, just jump into this idea of uh, uh, like systematic narcissism, so like a, a system. And I yeah. think um, I want to just share a brief experience and then like get your opinion on it, basically. So yeah, when I was 
being interviewed for this place, um, always talked about how great it was, how much God was blessing it. Clearly, the growth was a sign of God's blessing upon the church. Like, come be a part of this special thing. It's so awesome. Like, God is calling you here. Show up. Um, oh, by the way, here's our systems. This is how we do things. Um, and it was even called the so-and-so way, okay? Like, the church name way. This is the blank way, and that was always used. This is the way we do it, the way, the way, the way, the way. Um, we're always told, like, you know, if you want to get along around here, you're going to have to drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> and that's a true thing. And then, like um, Marty said earlier, we had these systems that we had to learn and, like, internalize. And that was the way that, that we did things. And all the other churches could really learn from us and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it was presented very nicely. Like they would have these things and invite churches. I mean, they had to pay a stupid amount of money to come to this, but then they would share their wisdom with them to like yeah. spread this wisdom that God has blessed them with. Uh, so systems can be narcissistic as well. Yeah. 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 yeah there's a writer named Gerald Post who says, you know, uh, he talks about this in terms of like cult dynamics and what you're describing, you know, the drink the Kool-Aid is a, cult dynamic right so Straight, literally <laughs> it's from a cult <laughs> right so i mean that's what's scary about this and it could be the large church but it can be the small one like i i often tell the story of the small church in like rural iowa who like we're the we're the chosen church like we we have the best theology we're special we're chosen we're unique like no no churches have been blessed like we have and they were a church of like 70 and the smaller they were the more blessed they were you know and yeah. so it comes in different sizes and different packages. But what you're talking about, this idea of systemic narcissism, is this idea that now it's not just located in the leader, but it's located in the system, in the organization. And so now we have this collective sense that we're special, that we're God's chosen, that we're unique, you know. And people really have literally drank the Kool-Aid at that point. And they will, they, will, they will die for the leader, they will die for the system, or they will die for the the way, as you called it, right? Um, sometimes literally. And so that's where it becomes really frightening because it's it's one thing, you know, I, I remember working with a church, a large church, where they thought when they fired the pastor, the senior leader, they'd be okay. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. There, it's all throughout. Like, we, we've got to do a lot more work. And they're like, oh, no, it's fine. We've done enough with you. And so, so about two years later, they call and they're like, we are a mess. We, we didn't deal with the the stuff, you know, and we didn't realize how embedded it was and how we carry the torch of the narcissistic leader and all the systems and all the structures and all the programs. And so, yeah, Josh, what you're talking about is really important. And it's not just about the charismatic leader. It's about what's embedded in, in the systems and structures underneath. Mm -mm. Yeah. And I think, too, what was so difficult about it was we couldn't so part of the reason that I had such a hard time there is because I constantly questioned the system and was like, no, this is dumb. Like, can we try something else? And that was a big no-no. You got in trouble for that. Um, but we – there was – like a lot of churches operate with like a board or some kind of elder group or something. Yeah. The board was made up of the founding pastor, the two head pastors, and then like their buddy – and so we didn't even have anywhere to go outside yeah. of that. So does that kind of – have you seen that in other churches as well? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. And, and oftentimes, you know, with, these, with, with some of these churches, with church plants in particular, 
you can sort of handpick the team of, of yes men or yes women that will will sort of abide by your way. Yeah. Um, this can happen, by the way, and I always like to say this because I like I'm a denominational guy. I've been one for years. It can happen in denominations too. Uh, you can get elder boards that align with your way. You can. Um, we call this uh, the more invisible form of this is called the old boys club. Okay. And club, uh, whether it, whether or not it's official or not, it's that group of, of people who will protect you at all costs, you know. And so, you really do literally feel like they hear Marty and Josh like kind of just looking for someone to talk to, and you literally do feel like there's no one to go to. I, I'm yeah. all alone in this. Like I have no recourse. There's no justice. I want someone to know how bad this is, but there's literally no one to go to. That's so. Yeah so painful yeah and even and i can tell you go sorry go ahead josh i was just gonna say and even like when we left we i was told like because i quit um i was told like i'm not allowed to talk to marty anymore i was told i can't talk to congregants because that would just confuse them so like yeah but yeah. sorry about that marty i didn't mean to cut you off but yeah, and it was it was definitely a part of that that situation where you know you you you, you begin to see that you know you, you really can't have friends in which you can actually share friendship and you can actually talk about what's bothering you and what's on your mind. You know, the friends that really, because really the only people you have any time to actually spend time with are your family, your coworkers, and then every once in a while some congregants that you know, might come for an <laughs> event or might volunteer for something. And you build these great, great friendships with those congregants. And like as a worship pastor, I built great relationships, relationships with the people on my team. But of course I couldn't share those things with the people on my team. And that was definitely not going to be okay. And then to then think, you know, so really then it became Josh. I had Josh to share with. And uh, what wound up happening is I was, I was the guy that essentially, I, I would like to say, I, you know, to, to continue the terrible metaphor, I, I put the Kool-Aid in my mouth, but I didn't swallow. And I kept it there for the two and a half years that I was there. So I, I gave the illusion, I guess, in many ways that I was all in, but I was sort of the guy I'm trying to see this as crystal clear as I can, you know, I'm not going to view it through rose-colored glasses, but I'm also not going to just buy in 100%. I want to kind of have an open mind. Um, and uh, so when I when I when I left, it was a different situation. But you know, as Josh mentioned earlier, we could and you mentioned we could probably talk about this for hours and hours and hours, and like we could do a series on this book. <laughs> I feel like and spend time with each you know, chapter and really kind of go into depth. But I think the important question that we really need to ask, and I know Josh has a question he wants to ask too. So I want to be fair to your time, Chuck. Yeah. Cause um, we have to wrap things up. Yeah. What, what would you say? And I, I hate to, to reduce it down to a short answer, but what would you say is a way that healing from this abuse can happen? And, and I want to be careful that I, I use the word abuse because that's, that is what we're talking about here. Um, when we're dealing with true narcissism, personality disorder in a pastor we we are talking about abuse so how can someone go through with this how can they yeah. heal from that yeah that's a good question and thanks for it because oftentimes it's funny that's not i do these podcasts and we never get to that question <laughs> yeah uh, you know but i i think it, part of it is taking it seriously like what actually happened to you there there are these survival strategies that we engage when when we're in trauma uh you know the classic survival strategies of fight flight freeze, fawn, that we engage, uh, that really, if we, if we continue in that pattern, um, end up uh, toxic, uh, emotionally toxic in our own lives, physiologically toxic, uh, we end up 
um, we end up in 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 trauma for, for 5, 10, 15 years later because we never really dealt with the original wound, right? And so yeah, we've actually yeah. got to just name it, take it seriously, get get it, get going with the work, you know, in therapy and spiritual direction um, so that we can heal. And that involves grieving, you know, what happened. That sometimes involves getting really good and angry at our abuser, you know, and which is okay. Uh, I think if we let ourselves go down that road, what ends up happening is you don't end up in anger for the rest of your life. You, you do end up actually getting to a place of, of opening your hands and surrendering. Um, and sometimes you get to a place of forgiving, but that takes a really, really long time. But it, but it actually begins with acknowledging your own pain first. Yeah, and that's that's been the the hardest thing for me, Chuck, is acknowledging it because I for th- so long thought that I was the problem, and I also didn't I like second guessed myself because there were times when this person genuinely did nice things for me. So like I mm-hmm. questioned like you know what maybe I'm just overreacting or maybe this isn't true like I'm just making this up whatever. And also you don't want to sound like a whiny baby all the time. Like I didn't want that to be my story either. Um, but I did have. Real quick, because um, I know you have to go, but th- yeah. I have this, this I've identified this in therapy, and I think I so I stopped going to therapy, and I as we're having this conversation, I think I need to go back, but um, uh, I've identified that I have this deep longing inside of me to expose the church and the individuals who cause this pain, um. Because of a deep sense of injustice, they're still hurting people. They still exist. I wrestle with God. Like, why do you allow this church to exist? And um, I also like, it's like deep seated. Like I, I feel the need to do that, but I also don't think that is helpful. Yeah. So like, what, what do I do with that? (laughs) Like I want justice to be brought. Cause also I feel guilty. Like I played a role in perpetuating this church. Yeah. I would I would want to separate out your longing from the the act, action that you'd engage um, to, to sort of meet that deeper need or deeper longing. So the longing is for justice, right? Um, we all long for justice. The, the tricky thing about justice is that it, it seems to go on and on and on, like unattended to at times, right? I mean, look at the Psalms, look at the scriptures. I mean, there, there's a cry for justice that Sometimes in some cases feels like it goes unheard. You wonder kind of where's God in the midst of it. And I think that the trouble is uh, instead of holding the longing in a, in a place of lament or prayer, um, we, we want to enact justice on our own terms. Um, I know I've, uh, I, I've thought about, I've strategized ways to get justice um, for people. <laughs> right. So that, that's me saying, no, I'll take, I'll take the bull by the horns, Lord. Um, I don't really trust you to, to enact it. And I remember years after I experienced some pain in ministry, um, I, uh, some things transpired at the church that uh, I, I served at um, that allowed me to see that it took longer than I thought it might take. But some, some things happened, right? That didn't always happen in every story. But I, but I realized, wow, I needed it in my own time, in my own terms, it's happening way later, but some form of it is beginning to happen now. Um, I, 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 uh, I really regret the years that I spent sort of strategizing to get justice my own way rather than simply sort of grieving and surrendering. We all do it in different ways, right? But 
I get it, man. I get it. Um, and you want to, part of that is like, I want to protect other people from this too. Exactly. Right? We have friends that still go there. That's right. And there are ways. And so what you do, what you do then um, to be concrete is, I mean, the one part of it is just, yeah, you, you express your longing, you cry out to God. The second piece of it is with a wise mentor, friend, therapist, spiritual director, you think about concrete ways that you can engage. Um, and, and maybe there are ways of, of, um, of naming this. Maybe there are, um, maybe there are people that you can talk to. I don't know, but, uh, cause I don't know your situation. Um, I have these conversations all the time with people and we think of like, what are the constructive ways rather than reactive ways mm-hmm. that participate in the justice of God in the world? Um, yeah. and when they come out of that deeper place, they're inevitably much better than if I just, if I live out of my own reactivity, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. no, most definitely Chuck. Well, that's that's super helpful because I think, I mean, Marty and I got in trouble one time. We actually had threatening letters sent to our places of employment because uh, somebody name dropped after talking to us. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know, we were honest with them, so that sucks. But yeah, man, I, the thank you so much for your time today. I know you have to yeah. go. This has been uh, super helpful. Um, like way helpful and this is a a conversation that i still i think this has showed me i need to still i'm not as good off about this as i thought i was i need to still pursue reconciliation and and help here um so but thank you for this conversation i appreciate it guys thank you thank you for engaging it you know thanks for for the good questions that you ask that come out of a lot of thoughtful processing of this and yeah I, so so you have more work to do. I have more work to do. Like, <laughs> but um, I I feel like a genuine kind of leaning into the hard stuff, and I'm grateful for that. So yeah. thanks, guys. Uh, I'd love yeah. to talk more about it some other time. Yeah, Chuck. Thank great. you so much, man. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Yeah. Have a great uh, great rest of your day. And uh, Marty, as always, go Caps, bro. And go Blackhawks. And I guess Islanders too. <laughs> Peace, guys. Thanks for listening. Oh,